This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I chat with Dr. Anna Arabindin Kesson, Associate Professor of Black Diaspora Art at Princeton University, about her new book, Black Bodies, White Gold, Art, Cotton, and Commerce in the Atlantic World. Enjoy the conversation, family. Hello, Anna. How are you doing this afternoon? Or it's kind of dark outside. It's, you know, post, uh, you know, daylight savings time. So it's probably a little dark. But uh, how are you? I'm really well, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really lovely to, to be here. And yes, it is very dark outside. So it feels much later. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's wild. It's it literally happens every year. But you would think based upon how people describe, you know, uh, the daylight savings time, you know, you think it would be brand new every year. Uh, that, that's the part that always makes me laugh every year. I know it, it does. It does feel like a surprise every time it comes around. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And so uh, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me about your amazing new book, Black Bodies, White Gold art, cotton, and commerce in the Atlantic world. And so for those who haven't read your book, but will after they purchase your book, you know, Duke University Press, of course, um, can you let the folks know what the Genesis story is behind uh, Black Bodies, White Gold? Sure. So I, I guess my work in many ways focuses on histories of migration, the movement of of obviously of enslaved people, um, the movement of, of, of the ideas and objects, um, which I think is, you know, kind of fundamental to, to black diaspora art, which is my, my area, um, in, in art history. And of course is a fundamental framework of black studies. And so I came across the work of the artist Libana Hamid, who's a, um, British, British artist, um, really significant in black feminist um, 
so British Black Feminist Art Histories and um, you know Feminist Art Histories, and she made this work called Cotton.com that really so trace the movement of cotton from plantations in the U.S. South to factories in Manchester in the United Kingdom. And in doing so, she was kind of looking at the way histories of slavery have underpinned um, British history and cultural production, but also looking at the ways that materials like cotton created forms of or moments of connection um, between different places and different communities of people. Um, and she she did this in, in this very kind of embodied um, speculative way, like she was sort of imagining how bits of uh, bits of hair or bits of sweat um, skin from enslaved from an enslaved cotton picker might have been you know caught in the fibers of cotton that then got transferred to factories in Manchester. Anyway, I was I was looking at that work and I was talking with Lebena and you know, who's been very generous uh, to me in that sense, and it sort of just helped really helped um, me see how I might be able to visualize these histories of um, of movement, particularly the the histories, sorry, particularly the ways that um, histories of slavery and colonialism shaped these or created the kind of spaces for for these movements of things and and um, and people. And so cotton seemed like this suddenly became this really um, tangible and and um, you know t- tangible material that that could allow me to you know kind of do that study as an art historian. And you know, as an art historian doing this work, I'm very much interested uh, to know what was the largest challenge you faced uh, constructing, researching and or writing uh, this particular book as well? I think there are, maybe there are a couple of challenges that I might highlight. So I think one is... You, you um, got the time to talk about all of them, if, if you'd like. <laughs> you know, the, the airwaves are yours, as I, as I like to say. The airwaves are yours. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Um, I'll try and be succinct. I think for an... So, you know, my topic is not a very traditional art history subject, right? I, I work on material, like literally materials, but also objects and, and art uh, and visual culture that historically is, you know, not necessarily been um, viewed as aesthetic, aesthetically valuable, right? But um, so I think for me, you know, some of the struggles were to do with feeling like I had to find objects that might be more art historically um, important Um, and then kind of connected to that was the challenge of, you know, finding, of trying to narrow things down because there's so much, you know, in terms of the history of cotton that was sometimes hard to know where to stop. But I think that, you know, that first challenge about finding an object um, that seemed you know, seemed um, aesthetically pleasing enough for, for a field like art history. I think that was very much a, a challenge that was connected to me finding my own voice as a writer 
and, and you know, as this is a podcast about new books, um, and I'm sure many of the people who are on the podcast, it's often their first book too. You know, I think that's sort of part of that mm-hmm. process of of writing your first book and and you know putting your voice and your your position out there, um, which can be really um, really challenging and scary. You know, in, in some ways. Um, but because I'm also someone who's been very much embedded in the black studies and you know, African-American studies, I think that was really where I was able to um, position myself in terms of um, feeling like in the end I, did, I didn't have to, to make the case for these objects to be of art historical value because they, their value was, you know, um, their value was in telling these other stories that are still just as important in art history as in you know other fields. And so, um, digging into the book a moment, um, you you lean on the works of artists like uh, Hank Willis Thomas, uh, Yinka Shana Bear. Um, forgive me if I'm uh, mispronouncing, and others uh, t- to advance. Um, your overall argument. And so why did you choose the crop of artists and different artwork uh, for your study of blackness's connection to the cotton crop? Because I, I was that was the one of the first um, as someone who's not embedded in art history, but has an uh, interest as we were talking for about 30 minutes before we started here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much interested. And so I'm, I'm, that was one of the first questions that I had that I wrote in the book because I'm one of those people who I, I'd like to write in the book um, as well as typing out my notes later on. So I like to write in books too. So um, it's nice to go back and kind of find the notes that you've, you've made for yourself. Yeah, yes, that's a great question um, because I think for me, so, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm in African-American studies and art history that those are my kind of two two fields and they're my two positions here at Princeton um and I really think of art history as giving me the tools right to to do the work of um, of African-American studies and I and so my 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 own work and research and teaching moves between the historical and the contemporary and and that's really important to me to have that dialogue um not not to kind of create a a continuous you know even a continuous kind of flattening connection between the past and present, but to really understand how the past informs the present, but also how contemporary artists can help us see the past in in new ways. And so that's really why artists like, why I use um, the work and why I kind of start with the work of these uh, four artists, Hank Yinka, Lubaina, and then Leonardo Drew, um, because they're also using cotton in really important ways um, to to look back at these historical processes and these historical experiences of black communities, but also to um, to materialize the ways that these histories can continue to shape um, you know meanings around blackness um, and value. And so, if, in many ways, they they gave me the methodology for you know going back to the archives, um, and so that that for me, so it wasn't so much that I was necessarily studying their work 
um, I mean, I was, but I was studying their work in order to kind of show how their work gives us historians methodologies for for looking at the past. And 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 thank you because that that's a that's a great way to think about it for myself. Is once again someone who's um, not steeped in art history, but you know, in, in always trying to better understand, especially as a historian who writes about you know, 18th century enslaved women, but also people who were enslaved by many of the prominent gentry in Virginia at, in the late 18th century and to thinking about representations of themselves, you know, because I found, uh, I think it's Virginia colonial, like portraiture uh, project. Um, when I was a fellow at the American Philosophical Society, which I want to talk about like portraiture and having these dusty old white men just staring at you while you're researching and uh, even at times getting your stuff checked in ways that are not always the same as others, shall we say. Um, it's a, it's a whole, it's a total, like, you know, for lack of a better way to say mind fuck in a way uh, when you, you know, when you're trying to do your work, but you know, um, so, 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 so thank you for that. And also for indulging my slight tangent um, <laughs> as well. No, uh, I, Newbrook's I, listeners, totally, you know, y- y'all know. Totally <laughs> Um, and so, um, I also have another question. So, um, you state on pages 26 to 27 that quote, I have framed my historical scholarship through the work of contemporary artists because their artistic practice can enliven our understanding of the production of historical knowledge End quote, what practices do the artists enact and how do they enliven our understanding of historical knowledge? Because I know you had referenced it just then, but I'm, I'm interested to know as well because I, I I love your your writing just just generally as a writer. So oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that that's a another great question. I think for me, in this book, it was the way these artists are very intentionally and critically, but also speculatively going back to these historic to these. 19th century, sometimes 18th century archives and working with them in ways that both, you know, highlight the the kind of absences and silences. So, you know, Lebena's work, Cotton.com, where she's imagining these bits of hair or, you know, these sort of corporeal, um, the, the kind of corporeality of cotton to me, works in a very significant way to both highlight the ways that, you know, that the, the archive itself elides the, 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 the physical bodies of black people. Right? And so, um, so I was looking, for, for example, at, you know, ledges that in which enslaved people are noted down according, you know, just numbers or their body measurements, right? And that's something that people like Sadia Hartman and Christina Sharp have talked about, you know, as a kind of, as a sort of um, turning, you know, fig- uh, flesh into figures, that sort of the racial calculus, right, of, of black life kind of comes out. But then someone like Lubaina offers us a way to, to think, to, to look at these um, archival documents but use them differently and, and think about what isn't there and find ways of... Um, I wouldn't say find ways of of creating, 
you know, voices, but I think find ways of working with the, with the absences actually. Um, and so, you know, so that's something that um, Lubaina talks about in, in her work. Someone like Hank Willis Thomas, he's very interested and very much um, looking at the at, at visual archives and the circulation of, of images. And so the, the book that opened, the, the, sorry, the, the image that is on the cover of my book is, is, one, is his work, Black Hands, White Cotton. And it's, you know, it's a photograph of, um, I'll presume, a sharecropper's hands with, with cotton um, in the palms. And, and um, you know, and he there's this really incredible visual resonance between the background and foreground, between, you know, the, 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 black, the black hands and the white cotton. Um, that's both about kind of equivalence, you know, between the two, which is something that I emphasize in my book, the way that cotton and blackness in terms of the, in terms of, uh, the market, you know, did have a kind of exchange value. And, you know, um, Frederick Douglass would remind his, his audiences of this all the time. Um, but, you know, what, what Thomas does is um, he sort of, he takes an image and almost uh, he splices it in interesting ways. So he'll, you know, he'll rework it, um, print it differently, and then printing bring out different elements of it. But he also sort of pauses it within that circulating economy of of um, exchange. That um, and I think by pausing, he fo- really forces us to to look closely and and then start to see how meaning gets congealed and embedded in 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 images and so that for me was another way of kind of thinking about how to do that work of up close looking and, and deconstruction um someone like leonardo drew actually uses cotton itself so he his work um and he talks about the kind of mate- cotton as a material with its own memory so there's a sort of way he's talking about um again the kind of embedded histories and ha- but also bringing in hapticality and how we might use different senses beyond uh, beyond the visual. Um, and then I think someone like um, Yinka Shanabari is, you know, he's he's also very much playing with kind of archival images. So the work I use, Scramble for Africa, is a is a play on the on images of the Berlin Conference. Um, you know, where the continent was literally kind of cut up but mm-hmm. but he does it mm-hmm. um oh, sorry but he does it in a kind of um in in he in almost a satirical way but again i think um you know br- but then brings in these other these other circuits of connection through his use of textiles that connect asia and africa and you know kind of show us other think other possibilities and and other histories that actually these archives occlude and so those are some of the different ways that I I found these artists work to provide new methodological frameworks for the kind of historical work that we are trying to do and so for for those who uh, might be listening to this conversation we'll say maybe in 2025 or 2035 or, you know, some later time in history. Um, I, I think this is a, a good uh, a time to foreground us in the particular moment that we're in in 2022. So 
Um, your opening chapter is aptly titled Threads of Empire. Once again, for those listening, the professor and I are chatting not long after the death of England's longest ruling monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, with that context laid, can you uh, tell the listeners how Black Body's White Gold contextualizes the logic that effectively undergirded British monarchical uh, wealth expansion, which, you know, you were talking about the the Berlin Conference and, you know, the different, um, you know, cotton as its own kind of fixture in our imaginary, um, you know, ultimately goes back to, you know, monarchical rule. Um, so I've, in, in the context of, of all of this, and, and um, I think it would be interesting to hear uh, you, you be able to comment, I guess, on this dual connection here in the particular moment that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The, uh, the death of the queen. Yes. I just wrote a piece actually about this, but I mean, I, I think what, you know, what I tried very much to do in this book is bring together the histories of slavery and histories of colonialism and really emphasize that, you know, that they're not disconnected, that, that slavery, you know, it's the economic engine of British colonial expansion. And so while I don't talk about India, places like that, that much, you know, it, it's sort of they're there in the sense that, you know, I, I kind of gestured towards how, you know, how these, how these kind of networks between the plantation and the factory also then underpin but and um, un- underpin like kind of British exports to India and in turn um, the British um, destruction of you know local Indian textile production you know so, so there's so there's in that sense you know I would say that what my book's trying to do is like really bring together what Stuart Hall called the kind of inside and outside of, of British history you know just um, he has that wonderful quote about, I'm the sugar and the tea, some of us are the tea. But, you know, just like visually, like in such a very, very material, visual ways, um, describing how Britain, Britain, its history, its cultural production, you know, its entire um, uh conception you know modern britain from you know it is is sort of sustained by empire and so i think that that's really what um what in in the context of the, the death of of the monarch um i think what my book is trying to do is show how also this you know this history underpins the monarchy as well and you know the the kind of logic of extraction that um underpins colonialism and through which you know geographies are imagined for their or imagined and visualized for their resources is what underpins the the wealth of the British monarchy um you know there's and there's plenty of paintings showing you know monarchs like Queen Victoria you know accepting the kind of different fruits of empire um Right, which I think Megan wore on her veil when she got married. But um, you know, so there's you know, there's a there's I think there's a direct connection between cotton as a commodity and that <clears throat> a commodity and a um you know the a, and the kind of wealth that it brings, but but also in the kind of um 
you know, in, in more sort of specific ways, the textile, the trade in cotton textiles, um, you know, for you know, cotton was a currency in the buying and selling of enslaved people. Um, and in part, it was this um, this trade in, in slavery that also spurred on industrialization in Britain and certainly spurred on innovations in textile, in the textile industry in terms of dyeing and printing as British um, manufacturers wanted to imitate um, especially Indian produced cotton goods that would be um, that could be sold to West African consumers and so um, you know there's so these um, and you know in in many of the world's fairs you read about Queen Victoria visiting right visiting these displays of cotton and these displays of textiles and you know because it's all about kind of showing the wealth of of Britain, i.e. the wealth of the empire. So, so yeah, I, I suppose in that sense my book is, you know, kind of um, materialising that very, very deep um, reliance on empire that, that the monarchy um, has, although it's often occluded in the way it's talked about. Yeah, and, you know, we've spoken a lot on um, on Twitter especially and just thinking about to to your point about you know extraction and about you know how the British monarchy gets represented even just in death, you know because because I think that you know when a monarch or when a prominent um, individual part of that global family um, is you know dies or is killed that brings out a particular um it, it brings out us a particular you know especially in, in a space like social media where you're collectively responding to an event like that i think it just brings about a interesting discussion about like how does one feel where it's like you're not necessarily you know uh, I, I think a lot of people will say you know you're not you know, obviously supposed, maybe not obviously, but you're not supposed to quote unquote speak ill of the dead. But it's also, what about when the person that died had their hands in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, dare I say millions of deaths? Um, and then, you know, there was a pro- the academic, I think uh, Carnegie Mellon or, or uh, there, there was a black. Uh, a, yeah, a I think black- it was Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Right. And and then you literally and if I remember correctly, it just seems so long ago, but it wasn't. Wasn't she the same one that was it Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, one of the two effectively was trying to come for her job uh, because of how. Oh, yeah, this is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess the Spark Notes version in this case would just be off the top of my head. You know, she was someone who I believe, I don't know if she's Kenyan or, um, effectively she's marking that. Nigerian, I think. Was a Nigerian. Okay, Nigerian. And her effectively saying that her, um, you know, we we see what the British did in, you know, the 1960s and 1970s um, in, in Nigeria and obviously throughout the history of colonialism. And she represented that in her 
way that she was feeling about uh, Queen Elizabeth's death. And then you see, I, I think it was either, it was one of the two billionaires, Bezos or um, Musk, where they just, you know, this fury. And then her university didn't back her. And it was just, it was just wild. And and so just thinking once again, going back to how the fetishization of monarchy, which ironically is connecting us to what just came out last weekend, Wakanda Forever, which is, Wait, I think... I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched it oh, yet. Oh, no, 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 neither have I. No spoilers. Okay, okay good. Uh, but, but I think you can just even go to the original Black Panther where the representation of this insulated, you know, empire on the continent of Africa who, you know, they employ the... Effectively, this you know they got they got a, it was the CIA, you know, it, it's just like <laughs> it's just you know you, you know you could never win, you could never win. But um, you know, tangentially, of course. But um, I, I just think that you know this question also just gets to a lot of different um, popular culture uh, moments, really, of the last uh, I would say just throughout twenty twenty two. Um, just in general. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, that's one of the, yeah, obviously one of the important critiques of Black Panther, you know, you know the way that um, rule forms of governance are essentially just um, more benevolent forms, right, of, of what we have under uh, capitalism and um, these kind of hangovers of, of empire. Um yeah, so which is an inter- it's interesting watching something like that with children as well and trying to kind of <laughs> deconstruct parts of it. But um but I think, you know, I just and I'm I'm not going to do that here cuz there are far better people who who can do it, but I I think that you make a really good point to connect it to this longer history of empire. Um I mean, it, it, they do in the film too, with particularly with you know like the the looting of objects and you know again the way the really significant role that um, you know materials and and um, art and artifacts play in the kind of circulation of ideas about rule and and its visualization. Um, but I think what was really um, uh, what what's really significant there too is your point about how this became a kind of communal communal um, communal experience, right? Of her death, of the queen's death, be- because of its sort of massive kind of global broadcast, right? So, um, so we were we were almost it felt like you were compelled to feel a certain way. Um, and then, then all of this sort of, I don't know what the word, what the, what the word was, but um, the, the word is to use, but the kind the way that uh, feeling gets, gets instrumentalized, I think is really um, significant. So, and so the sense that, you know, you couldn't, there, there wasn't a way to, kind of differentiate her as a kind of person with a family who people are mourning 
versus her as a kind of public figure. Um, and what was really striking to me, and I know this is way off tangent, but what was really striking to me is that as a monarch, she she was very clear about like the personal and political being completely enmeshed, right? Like she kind of constructed herself as this kind of maternal figure of empire and, you know, her kind of public service, her duty was in that was, it was all part of that narrative. And so it, I think for many of us who were, you know, who are apparently subjects, right, of, of this monarch <laughs> because of where we were born, um, or where our nationality is, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't at all difficult to see that and to say, well, you can't, like you can't really talk about this without talking about empire. But it was really striking to me, I mean, that in in the kinds of, in the sort of centres, and I, I think of the US in a, as a, one of those centres just because of how obsessed people in the US seem to be with the British monarchy. But, um, you know, just like how how it became, like how it did become this kind of, almost respectability politics about what what you can say and what you can't say and when I was interviewed about it and um the newscaster was sort of saying oh are you saying then that people who mourn are kind of um you know what was he saying they're sort of um they're unthinking and they're mourn you know it it was sort of like this sense and I was like well no I mean I'm not commenting on people's feelings I'm commenting on what what she stood for and there was a, a real it wasn't kind of it was difficult to make that and which is I think how that got played out with um you know the way this professor at Carnegie Mellon was treated um because I you know the same was said in Australia you know by Indigenous activists I mean these things have been said by people you know for years but it suddenly took on this very very political valence in, in a new way. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And it also reminds me of the conversations that folks have around, um, you know, monuments. You know, she wasn't a um, statue, but, you know, the way that people reacted to the reactions of her death, like her, she was a monument in and of her own, in part because of how old she was. And you know, that although she didn't get, you know, put into a um, statue, you know, it was almost like, you know, roads must fall, you know, uh, you know, all the statues and, you know, um, and, and that 
by virtue of how people reacted, it was almost like, you know, you're you're bringing her down and throwing her into the water uh, to drown. And it's like, no, that's not literally what people were doing. But, you know, if, you know, once again, like you were saying that Queen Elizabeth and even going to the point with um, uh, Megan, when you are married into or you are born into this wealth, you are literally given like, like, like you're literally given things that, you know, if we're talking about like, quote unquote, working and are, you know, laboring or working for stuff, you know, they're able to even, you know, they're able to do things that other folks in the, in that nation are not able to do with money. And and then I think there's some people that I think I've read say uh, the amount of money that they bring in, in terms of, you know, like, I'm not gonna lie, like, when I when I was uh, researching or when I was studying abroad in in London two years ago, or no, 10 years ago, my mom came for for Christmas. And let me tell you, besides giving me a hug and a kiss, she was like, Adam, we got to go to Buckingham Palace. And when I when I gave a talk at Oxford in 2019, she once again was like, look, Adam, you're I don't know how much time you got, but you need to go to Buckingham Palace to give me some China. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, look, look, I get it. Like people love Oh yeah. You know, it, it's 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 weird, but it's also like I'm not about to tell my mom, like, look, mom, and I and the other thing, my mom is literally gonna be listening to this too. So I'm interested to know what she'll say. But I'm like, mom, I'm not gonna be like, Bob, what are you doing? She, she was she was an emblem of empire, Bob. Well, you can't do this. You know, so I can't, you know, so so I understand that, you know, uh aspect is it's not only like out in the ether, but it's literally like at home. <laughs> with with uh you know my my bob who you know I, I don't know where it began but you know it's it's there and i and i don't i try not to you know put down people in that type of stuff and i don't I, I don't think i do but it is uh it's complicated as they always say no totally and my mom would be the same and you know i i yeah absolutely it's very complicated i i and again i think it's about kind of being able to sit with those tensions, you know, the contradictions and the, um, but, but also understand that, you know, this wealth comes from empire. And I think that was, that's the thing, you know, it's like just stating it was even, it even seemed impossible to state that. And I was, I watched bits of the funeral mostly because I was going to be, um, interviewed afterwards and, you know, I was just struck by the way that nothing about empire was even mentioned. You know, they're watching this coffin kind of move down on a on a gun wagon that was used in, as um, Dan Hicks pointed out on Twitter, it was used in by Queen, you know, in the wars in South Africa, um, and on to- on top of the coffins, the the crowd with the with the the looted diamonds. I mean, it's just, it's just there if you if you care to acknowledge. But I think for me, I was just really struck by how much, um, how it, it wasn't even hiding the fact. It was just a kind of refusal to to even see what was right there, you know. Um, and I think you know this conversation co- connects great with you know, my next question and really your book just in general, where, 
you know, I'm I'm interested to know like really why does the production of visual images, you know, play why does it play such an integral role in how you know certain groups of people associate themselves with in cert- with certain traits or in in your book's case crops, you know, because I, because I think that the connection between visual images, how people connect themselves within the world, um, I think is something that your book does. Um, is as as someone of African descent, you know, here in the states, but I'm sure even for people um, who are reading from different areas um, of the Americas. So, so I'm interested to know about that connection as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is why it feels like art history, despite their uh, their, uh, problematic histories, (laughs) are really important because so much of the way we see frames the way we respond and relate to each other and, and, you know, really directly influences how we can imagine, you know, futures together or not. I think for me, the, the, this relationship of, of um, you know, how, how you see and how you act or, you know, how perception frames actions, I was first really introduced to that, you know, as someone who um, was an immigrant, moved to a country where I did face a lot of racist discrimination. But then also um, as, a, as a nurse, I was a nurse before I... Um, became an academic and you know I was trained and I say I say this always because it's really important to me um, to kind of honor these women but I, I was trained by Maori and Polynesian women um, and that it was when I was you know like 17 in nursing school like that's when I first read like critical race theory and you know and it, they really sort of showed me how legacies of colonialism have a deep impact on how we how we see people and then quite literally how we treat them in the hospitals, right? So, you know, the ways that different kinds of stereotypes um, emerge or the ways meanings about different kinds of bodies or different communities kind of congeal around, you know, these different sorts of uh, ways of seeing people was was so stark to me as a, as a nurse and working in, in the health system um, in, in different countries. But... And that was really what drew me to art history. And so what I what I found with something like with cotton, that which I, you know, was really fascinated by, was that um, for 19th century viewers too, you know, cotton was a really important visual symbol of so many different aspects of, com- you know, commerce as a kind of way of, or, or the free market, right, as a way of kind of connecting um as a symbol, you know, cotton because of the way it moved and transformed, it provided a really visual metaphor for the for the ideas of progress, um, both kind of you know in terms of political economy, but also again in terms of um, industrial progress, um, in terms of you know progress associated with with capitalism, um, and I, I wanted to highlight that because I think you know we we often talk about global histories or global networks in this very kind of, um, but what's not positive is not the right word, but, but we, but it, it's a, it's become quite a popular, I think, way of c- celebrating globalization. And I just wanted to kind of 
historicize that and say, like, no, look, like this, actually these these global, these networks, you know, they come from th- this history of colonialism, this history of slavery. But then the, the final thing, I, you know, I think was really um, powerful about both cotton as a material, you know, something that was worn, as something that was represented, and also as... Um, as as a fiber you know as a crop and, and a fiber was the way it really framed meanings of meanings and ways of seeing blackness so this sort of um you know i talk about cotton as being inherently a kind of speculative crop right so when you're looking at the, the way that it was sort of visualized it was always when you're looking at cotton you're sort of imagining its future transformation into textiles into profit and you know, and I and there was a correlation there with the ways that um, enslaved people were were always looked at and bought and sold, right, on the promise of the profit they would bring. Um, but then, then very material ways, cotton, because of it was it was worn by enslaved people. It really visually frame, functioned. It functioned to to visualize them in very particular ways. So. Um, and so I kind of expand on, you know, that visual relationship to, to, to really show how these meanings about, um, about race, um, about blackness and about value do congeal. I, I, that's some, that's a term that Sarah Ahmed uses, um, you know, in her, in her work, but, but it is about how meanings kind of come to be really deeply embedded in, um, you know, in different forms, and then how those forms direct our orientation to each other. Um, so, so for me, that you know, that was really what I wanted to emphasize, because more broadly, you know, I think this is how visual culture, or why visual culture, it's so important to understand and um, you know to see how see its impact on social relations. And and this point that you make about how you see, um, you know, your connection between the speculative of cotton and also, you know, your connection to um, speculation about, you know, enslaved, um, enslaved people, you know, in, in, in how enslavers and, you know, folks who are engaging in the market for enslaved people uh, viewed folks. And it's also a way I think is a way that you can even think about you know, maybe teaching uh, your book, Black Bodies, White Gold, even with, um, although her work, I guess, in a way predates, uh, you know, the 19th century cotton phenomenon, but what I actually think about uh, Dr. Jennifer Morgan's work as well in terms of her, you know, work on um, Black women and, and, you know, especially in her more recent book, uh, Reckoning with Slavery. And so I definitely see those connections, especially even, um, with the the woman who uh, graces the cover um, of the book as well, which is also a Duke University Press uh, publication as well. So you know your your uh, you know your fellow uh, uh, publication mate um, as well. And so um, and also this question, let me also just say, uh, comes from uh, a time about twelve years ago when um, I was a undergrad at uh, Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida. And actually, my friends and I, um, we drove from Tallahassee to Atlanta. And instead of using the main highway, um, I-10, we ended up 
taking um, back roads. And it might not have actually been the first time, but it's the first time that it stuck in my mind. I'd actually seen, I think it was around either Valdosta or Thomasville, Georgia, um, a cotton, uh, you know, cotton crop just budding in white um, on, on the road. And I was like, yo, and, and it's wild because it just, my body just tensed up. So it was just, I had never, to my time, to my mind at 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, never actually seen a cotton, you know, plantation or cotton crop that, you know, large and white. But it was just kind of like that memory of something of the old that just like crept up in that moment, um, which is really where the heart of this question uh, really comes from, because I had no experience you know, doing that kind of agricultural labor, yet my personal association as a person of African descent, it just brought me right back there. Um, which is something that really your book helped me to better understand, you know, the visual representation of why my body and my friend's bodies tensed up in that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so, I think... Those kinds of moments are so, um, they're so powerful, but they're also uh, sort of, I think, almost haunted, you know, or, or haunting. And part of that, I think, is because there's that kind of image is so embedded in, in, the, in the kind of memory bank and image bank of the US. Um, and it's, um, th- there's an artist called Holly Bass who's based in DC and she does this sort of beautiful kind of healing work of going back to these plantations with her father, I think, who lived near there or maybe even worked in or his family worked in some at some point. Um, and it's kind of a, a sort of it's almost like a, a an act of. Um, oh, yeah, it is an act of healing because it, it's sort of it's her and her father who go back and they kind of. um move through the field and sort of um, not reclaim but resituate perhaps. Um, And John Dowling is another artist from Philly. You may have come across him when you were there, but he does really beautiful, he calls them sort of um, ancestor kind of work, you know, where he films, he's photographed cotton plantations and he talks about, you know, he, he also talks about the way these, these histories are kind of embedded in the plant itself. And I think for me, you know, I wanted to, I think there's that really, really haunting history, but really important. I mean, it's haunting, but it's also a site of community formation. So I, you know, um, so I wanted to honor that, but it's also, I think cotton is so ubiquitous in many ways. Like it's almost something that we don't, we almost don't see anymore that the history that's in bed. And I want, and so I wanted to also kind of de- deconstruct those images in order to um, really, really um, kind of es- excavate that history. Because I don't, I think I, in order to, to do something different, we have to be able to sort of dismantle that, th- those legacies. Um, and actually when one of my, colleagues um saw the uh, uh, an image of leonardo drew's work 
um, untitled number 25 or number 25, which is a, a, like an enormous cotton bale. You know, she just said to me, that looks like asphyxiation. I feel strangled, you know, because of I'm looking at this screen of white cotton and everything that it calls up. And I think it happened just around the time, um, you know, not, not long after um, Mr. Garner was murdered by police. And, and so she was sort of making, you know, there's this sort of this, this sense of, she actually said, you know, I, I feel like I can't breathe when I look at this. And, so there's, you know, there's also this real, um, there's real terror, you know, racial, the racial violence and terror of that, of that history is, is embedded. And, and I wanted to, I didn't want to re, reconstitute that violence, but I, <clears throat> I, I did want to um, try to understand, you know, how that, how, how those histories and how that violence has become embedded in something like cotton and how it is that we can almost ignore it um, in in a weird way, in, in the kind of popular, you know, imaginary. Um. And and I think that, you know, your, your book certainly, I think, does that. Um, and, and it does many other things, which is the focus of my next question, which also ends your book. Um, and so this is on page 211. Um, this is, and this is, these are your words. This is my act of dismantling to clear space for new modes of vision through which we can build new forms of relation. Corey Menifee's act of smashing the stained glass window with a broomstick is not just a profound act of protest, but is also a metaphor for the kinds of actions needed now to challenge and radically transform the politics of vision that shaped this nation, end quote. Very great words, by the way. Um, but then also, um, before I get to the question at hand, I'm going to ask one that pre pre uh, prefaces it. Who was Corey Menifee and when his act of smashing? Can you tell us a bit more about um, your inclusion of him in the book, but then also what act prompted him to be included in your work that you know folks may not know thank you yeah so as i was finishing up the book um there was a i, I heard about the story about um this man cory menifee who was who worked in the dining halls of one of the um residential colleges at yale it used to be called um calhoun college now it's called grace hopper college um and I used to be, I was, I did my PhD at Yale and I was a graduate, what do you call it, Gra graduate fellow or something um, at Calhoun, and it was called Calhoun then. So I was a graduate fellow at Calhoun College um, and, you know, Calhoun was obviously the, the um, plantation owner, um, owner of enslaved people, um, political uh, politician, um, and what Corey Menifee did, and I, I think when he did this, it was still called Calhoun. So it only recently became, was changed to Grasshopper. He got up on a table one day with a broom and smashed the stained glass window that showed two people um, in the act of picking cotton 
on a plantation. And it, and the stained glass window was, you know, above the dining hall. And to my shame, I never noticed this window, even though I ate in that dining hall. And when I read about this story, I was just like, how this is unbelievable, <laughs> you know, that um, and so that the you know the stained glass window was made in the early 20th century it was kind of part of this whole um discourse around the the lost cause you know the, the which was associated with the civil war and you know this slavery as a kind of benevolent institution and um david black has written a lot about this but so it was so and that was when so it was made around in the early 20th century and that was when it was um you know put into the the using the building of the dining hall. Um, and what Corey Menefee said was, you know, no one should have to come to work every day um, and see, I think it was like, and see these portraits of, of you know, slavery. And, and it was just so powerful because, you know, what he was saying was not, you know, not just the fact that, you know, these, these kinds of images are, um, you know, shouldn't, you know why? Why are they still part of the kind of um, architecture of, of of a workplace? But what he was also saying, I think, was you know what the psychological implications of these kinds of images um, are, and, and how they affect. You know, as you describe it, how they affect your physical, spiritual, you know, your your psychological life um, life worlds and. And, you know, so in that sense, it really just, you know, rammed home to me, like vision, like the implications of how we see and implications of, of what we're seeing. Um, and so I just, you know, I knew that I had to kind of include his act, um, both to kind of, I think, honour that that act of civil disobedience, but also I think because it's, so, it's such a powerful metaphor. I think that the window was taken down sorry it was not you know they didn't put it back up there but they have the um the shattered window kind of in the Yale art gallery now so um yeah so that that was that was Corey Manaphy's story and the you know I I think what I was what I what I wanted my book to do is do that work of kind of um historic you know very very closely and deeply kind of historicizing these these visual cultures but in doing that then also um dismantling them right kind of in order to try and you know find and then this is why these contemporary artists are so important to me you know because I think they provide us with with new ways of of seeing the seeing the past that can that inform that can inform um new ways of relating to each other and you know valuing each other differently and to and to me that's really key because i think um you know terms this book also coincided with the black lives matter movement and just the fact that one still has to say that you know that black lives matter um just the fact that that's still a phrase and a controversial phrase you know to to some I think sums up this relationship I'm trying to make between the way we see and the way we value and who we value. And I think that it's uh, very much a part of this um, politics of vision that you describe 
here in this final passage on page 211. So I'm actually um, interested in, you know, going back to that for a moment and really thinking about how does um, Black Bodies, White Gold and your broader work as a writer and a teacher, how, how does how does it push your how do they push your readers and also your students? Because, you know, you're also uh, a professor as well. Uh, to radically transform this politics of vision? Like, how does this, you know, occur even, you know, in your classroom? Um, because I'm always interested in about pedagogy and, and how, you know, monographs can be, you know, how can you see that in someone's uh, teaching as well? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, I can say what I hope, but <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no, that, 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 that counts, that counts. <laughs> I mean, I think just on a very basic level, I think what I wanted this book to do was to to read to to sort of disorientate our understanding of of, of history, right? To to see um, to see history differently, um, to and and to um, to to see how communities of of enslaved and and free, you know, black people we're always actively revising and um, resisting these kinds of ways of, of looking, um, these kinds of forms of um, commodification. It's something that Fred Moten talks about as a kind of resistance of the object, um, which I found to be a really powerful phrase um, in, you know, just trying to, to write about how enslaved people describe wearing cotton or, you know, so again, I guess it's about, you know, so another aspect of this is is maybe trying to um, write and describe and materialize um, other kinds of narratives, right, that that are not embedded in, uh, that are maybe not so easy to come across in the archive, whatever that, or wherever that may be. And I think, you know, seeing those things differently, um, then you know, does compel us, I, I hope, to to reorientate how we understand the centrality of these histories to, to what we are what we are now. Um, and I think acknowledging that centrality is not to kind of just recursively go over and over it, but to really I mean that in order to do something different, we have to have that starting point, right? We can't we have to understand how how the system operates because of its history and in order for it, a new systems to be brought about um you know we have to we have to move out of that that um we have to we have to um sorry we have to yeah we have to move out of those i think relationships and and imagine new completely uh new systems and i think um or, or structures or social relations and I think that's also an important aspect of seeing how um you know black diaspora communities did relate to each other differently you know the different kinds of um ways they they were um they were working through these histories um and I think this is why Jennifer Morgan's work is so important to me you know because she's talking she talks about kinship networks and um you know different different kinds of um forms of um feeling and connection um and i and so so that's one aspect i I think 
In my teaching, I think that's also what I try to emphasize. I teach black diaspora art. Um, so I, you know, both historical and contemporary. And, you know, I, I think I, what has been really, really wonderful to see is how students, um, you know, how students are able to make these connections themselves um, and how, you know, how they can, you know, often many of these black diaspora artists are new to them. So, you know, it's great to be able to, to work on that level, but, but also, you know, for them to see, um, I guess, to see how, how important the visual is in, in shaping these ideas, um, and how, how these black diasporic art practices give them new ways of, of, um, of understanding their own positionality, of relating to others, of imagining futures. Um, and, you know, I think another aspect of this is also about positionality. So my, I think my work is very self-reflexive and it's, it's about, it, it's also meant to, I think, compel the reader to, to think about where, what their viewership is and, you know, how their viewership is, um, it's framed or shaped and and what that means so um and I guess maybe kind of in a less personal but maybe more disciplinary um context I also really wanted to emphasize that these histories are embedded in feels like art history that there's you can't really you know there's not a kind of art is not a kind of objective or um aesthetic category that's divorced from or disconnected from Mm -hmm. these histories but they're actually embedded in how art is made how we understand um you know terms like the gaze or how we understand what what is valued and what is not within you know discipline so again I think um because again I think if we want to do something different we have we have to really understand what what the foundations are of, of where we stand now in order to, to build something new I guess you know so I, I'm I'm with those kind of this we have to we have to dismantle right we have to tear them down yeah. before we can rebuild so <laughs> <laughs> very much so very much so and uh, you're in good company with that uh, for sure for sure and so um, you know our time is getting short here. Um, so I want to respect your time because it is also probably near dinner time as well. Uh, so, so with that being said, what, what, what was that? Oh, I said dinner time for you too. So I'm sorry. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. No, no, no worries. Um, so, so we're going to get us out of here with one last question, if you can, but we'll, we'll end it on a, on a light note here. And so lastly, returning to writing here, because we had kind of started there, um, you know, Let's talk before we close up shop here. And and for those who listen to the podcast know probably where I'm going here. And so I love asking my favorite historians and writers about their workspace. Uh, so the greatest part about the new advent of Zencaster is I can see a little bit of your space here and you can see a little bit of mine. So it's a little give and take here. So if you had all the money you needed to build your own writing, reading and thinking space, where would it be? What would it look like? What would it smell like? and very much right with our conversation, what art would you get? <laughs> and so, and also what is playing in the background? 
So paint the picture for, for, for the people here. Oh, my goodness. Okay. It would be a, I think it would be upstairs. And there would be a lot of windows. There would be a lot of light and breeze flowing through. It would overlook the sea. I I grew up near the coast and, you know, I, I need water. Um, so Princeton is not easy. Um, it would have a lot of, so there would be, I think, windows on one side, bookshelves on the other. Um, and, the you know, I'd, I'd like, because there's a lot of light, I have to be careful with artworks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe maybe there would be a lot of tapestries and textiles as opposed to prints on the wall that might, you know, fade. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, although I wouldn't mind some some of the Lubaina Hamid's work because it's it's so her work is so bright and um, you know I think it it would really be and so inspiring you know in the kind of to look at as you're writing and then what is playing in the background um, that oh I don't know probably probably BBC Radio Six. Um, which I love, and Giles Peterson um, and Afro Deutscher are my two favorite DJs on there. So I would be having their playlists, I think, on repeat. So yeah, it would be it would just be very airy um, and smell okay. of the ocean. I think that that's really okay. I was gonna, I was going to ask the smell part. Okay, so the smell where we'll just say the ocean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's I like I'm... that. I like that. <laughs> well, y'all, this has been a great opportunity. Uh, to to come back and and uh, we have been talking with none other than Dr. Anna Arabindin Kesson, who is the author of this amazing book, Black Bodies, White Gold, Art, Cotton, and Commerce in the Atlantic World, published by Duke University Press. You know our good friends down in Durham, um, and also our professor is an assistant professor, if I'm not mistaken. Associate um, now. Oh, no, associate. Ah, see, the book is not telling the truth. This is good news. So congratulations to our associate professor of Black Dias- uh, Diaspora Art at uh, Princeton University. Um, and just just very, very, very happy for you for this great book and also for your, your tenure as well, which is an uh, outstanding feat. And so I'm happy for you and uh, looking forward to many more conversations and uh, looking forward to meeting you in person as well uh, next time I'm in the area too. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Adam. I look forward to meeting you and to reading your books when they come out too. But thank you so much for this <laughs> conversation. Of course, of course. Thank you. And uh, you are number 101. So this is also cool because this means, you know, you're the first one that I've crossed into the, uh, so technically 100 is too, but 101 I think is also special as well. Um, and so, y'all, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please rate us or and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, host of New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil. Until next time, y'all, over and out.